Everybody and welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. We are the retro show that talks about all the great memories of the baby boomer years. If you were born somewhere between the years of 1945 and 1965, you're going to be able to relate dearly to what we have to say in the next few minutes. I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm George. We have an exciting show today, a show of firsts. Uh, firsts of a lot of things. Smitty, we were talking before the show about things as, as we were young Boys growing up and George and, and things that when you're a child, when you're growing up and for that matter, adolescence and in your teen years, there are certain certain hallmarks, certain classic moments, certain classic things you've done as a young person that earmarked the first of many memories to come. But we'll start off, Smitty. Uh, do you remember some of the first things, the first things in your life? Yes, I do. You know, interestingly enough, I think I've mentioned on previous programs, I was I was an only child. I am an only child. So is George, as a matter of fact, just FYI, by, FYI, by way of, of coincidence. Uh, so I remember when I left my mom and dad's bedroom, uh, as I used to sleep in there as a little kid, and I went over to the, the other room and was sleeping in there. And what a... What a neat experience that was, but it was somewhat scary, too. I was in this room by myself, and I remember I remember a funny incident that happened was that I uh, went to bed, and I guess sometime during the night, my dad came into the room and put a chair next to the bed in case I happened to roll over. <laughs> that, that chair would stop me. Well, in the morning, I got scared because it, who put that chair there? So the following evening, I was back in my parents' room sleeping on the floor. <laughs> That's amazing. And I did that for maybe a, a night or two and then my and then my mom said your dad put the chair there because he was just you know wanting to make sure that you didn't roll off the bed but i remember it just kind of you know even as a little kid just the excitement of something new the fact that it was new i was in my room in my bed in a new whole new arrangement that mm-hmm. was exciting as a little kid mm-hmm. we remembered or maybe some of us remember our first bicycle sure. when we went from having a tricycle to an actual bicycle. But how about the first time when the training wheels came off? Oh, yes. How proud you felt and the freedom. I, I'm i a big kid now and mm-hmm. wondering if Dad is somewhat apprehensive. You're feeling a, a little anxious because those wheels, which kept you stable along the sidewalk for however many months or, or a year, and Dad got the crescent wrench or the the monkey wrench and took those two wheels off and off you went off down, you the went sidewalk, down the sidewalk the, f- the feeling of maybe power the feeling of uh, the feeling of passing to where I can ride bikes like the other kids now. It was a rite of passage. Yes, rite of yeah. passage. Yeah, it was yes. a rite of passage. George? I wanted to share about uh, going to one's first professional baseball game. Oh, wow. Okay. What a thrill that is uh, to be able to go to your first baseball game. And, of course, this has been explained by a lot of different people that have talked about you know, walking into the stadium and for the first time seeing, you know, the grass so green and getting up so close, you can smell that. And you have this sense of wonderment and particularly growing up here in Southern California, when you would go to Chavez Ravine and to visit Dodger Stadium, because uh, at that time, L.A. was not quite as overbuilt as it is now. But uh, Chavez Ravine stood out. But what makes my first baseball game so memorable was first and foremost, my dad and I uh, saw Don Drysdale, the Hall of Fame pitcher, 
And in fact, we were there to witness him setting a major league record that still stands to this day, six consecutive complete game shutouts. But what's also interesting about that game, it was also coming of age, not only for yours truly, but for my father. Because my father, who had been an American citizen for about 10 years at that point, uh, had asked me to write out for him on a three-by-five card the words for the national anthem, our Star-Spangled Banner. And so I remember at school that day, copying those words from him out of the music book that we had in class. I brought it home to him, and that night uh, when we were at Dodger Stadium that everyone stood, and in those days, you all sang the national anthem, mm-hmm. and I remember we you know, we had our hats over our hearts, and my dad had in his other hand this 3 by 5 card of uh, uh, the Star Spangled Banner, and he sang it word for word for the very first time in public. This was a very important rite of passage for him. But there's an interesting sequel to the story about the first baseball game. Mr. Drysdale passed away unexpectedly 25 years later, and by that time I was, you know, well into my adulthood and uh, working in a faraway place, and my father called to inform me about that uh, sad event. And in doing so, we reminisced about being at the first baseball game. And I mentioned my father about the 3x5 card. And gentlemen, it was at that moment that I learned that he still carried that 3x5 card with him in his wallet. So the first baseball game is more than just the first baseball game for me. Uh, An an important rite of passage that uh, transcended the decades that followed. That's a wonderful memory, George. Thank you for sharing that. That's very moving. Mike, what about you? Uh, any firsts uh, you remember as a little kid uh, that stand out in your mind? Growing up and getting in preteen years, but there's a lot of firsts, but the first time that you were entrusted by your family to do something, mm-hmm. entrusted to maybe go down to the store and pick up some bread or some milk and your mom or your dad giving you the money, a dollar or two dollars with a list, and you felt so grown up and so adult, and I'm being trusted to to do this errand, or mm-hmm. it could be being entrusted to be able to uh, to leave the block, sure. where you're seven, eight years old, and you could never leave the street or the block, and now you were able to cross the street, and you were able to, to do things uh, more independently, and as though... They don't think of me as a little kid anymore. I'm 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 a big boy. Or the girls, I I I'm a big girl. I can go over to my friend's house and and not have my mom walk me over, mm-hmm. or my mom pick me up. This is important. First is no longer my mom would meet me at school after school. It's probably in the mm-hmm. second or third grade. I was able to walk home by myself or or with some friends, and that was an important rite of passage because it it builds the confidence and it builds the fact that people trust you to conduct yourself and your behavior and and you're to go straight home you're not to stray but uh we're gonna let you we're gonna see how this works out i remember a first of being able to go to the movies without my parents Mm -hmm. and me and a couple of buddies on saturday matinee my mom would give us our movie money and it'd be saturday and we felt so big and grown up and independent to be able to to walk to the movie house and and buy our ticket and go in and select a seat in the, in the dark theater and go get some candy and 
my parents aren't here and and it was awkward in a sense it was somewhat uncomfortable but it was it was so redeeming that i'm i'm being trusted with something that i wasn't able to do this time last year or a few months ago just being trusted to operate the gas lawnmower mm-hmm. instead of the push lawnmower mm-hmm. uh, death defying feats that things that were too dangerous for you to do when you were 8 but when you became 9 years old there were certain things that you were allowed to do and and the feeling of maturity that came along with it. I think a lot of these firsts really have to do with uh, an increase in responsibility, an increase in in people trusting you. Uh, You know, certainly what you're relating to us, Mike, all has to do with that. I think another thing, too, is also it's it's a sense of empowerment that your parents are teaching you about how to properly behave as a responsible citizen. And uh, in our day, you know, you were not given this freedom of, uh, shall we say, self-expression, where you were able mm-hmm. to just sort of scream and shout and, and uh, demand certain things. You know, you were expected to follow certain codes of conduct. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, there's two events, two major firsts that uh, coincided with the same year for yours truly, and that was in the year 1965. It was our, our first uh, jet airline flight. In fact, it was the first airplane flight for me, period. Uh, I was not aware of it at that particular moment, but my father had arranged for us to uh, ride on a Continental Airlines flight out of Los Angeles International Airport. In those days, Continental Airlines was known as the proud bird with the golden tail, and they had a Boeing 720B four-engine aircraft, sister aircraft to the 707, that would do a survey flight over Southern California. And uh, it allowed you, during that span of one hour, to travel over the sea, over the desert, and the mountains of Southern California, and kind of gave you a feeling and appreciation for uh, air travel. That was a very proud moment for me, because I, at that time, I had only seen that on television, and I thought, wow, is this something that's going to become part of my life? And my parents said to me, yes, this was the coming thing, that this is how you were going to be traveling. Uh, you know, whether it be for personal or business, because at that time I'd only traveled by train. Now, flash forward several months later, my first trip overseas. My father had just been awarded his doctorate degree in engineering from USC, and he had arranged for a uh, three-month sabbatical. And so we spent the entire summer in the land where my father was born and raised, that is the country of Greece. And so you can imagine for an eight-year-old child to spend an entire summer in a foreign country, get a chance to meet all of your relatives and family members, and you suddenly have an appreciation of uh, your own personal heritage. This was a huge, huge first for me uh, to be able to travel overseas because it presaged my being able to do that more frequently in, in later life, more so in the context of business than personal. But nevertheless, it was a big step. And what I remember much like what you said, Mike, was that in both of those uh, venues, both of those events, my parents actually asked me to do certain things and to carry out certain tasks where I had to do them independently. And I was expected to do them, I wouldn't say with perfection, but I was expected to carry them out as a young adult and not to behave in a childish or immature manner. 
That's absolutely amazing, George. Back in the day, they would do those one-hour flights. That were they? I'm just curious when they when you were on this flight, were they pointing things out to you? There's the yes. There's this. There's that. Yes. And, okay. And 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 I understand that uh, because of course uh, jet air travel was very new in the early to mid '60s. That it was done not only pointing out all the various landmarks that you were going to see uh, that you were able to to view, but also about how to handle things in the aircraft. I mean, there were certain things that we were taught about mm-hmm. what you do uh, and, and rules of etiquette that uh, I wish actually would be brought back again. That'd be I think that society at large would benefit from that. that. That's amazing. But a great uh, branding by Continental mm-hmm. Airlines that allowed families to learn about the joys of air travel in a non-threatening, uh, re- relatively inexpensive manner at the time. Interesting. Mike, mm-hmm. I remember uh, my first stereo system in my room uh, not quite as dramatic as George's trip to Greece, but uh, I remember my dad got me uh, an 8-track player. And that was the first stereo that I had in my room. I had 8-tracks. And uh, that was neat to be able to, I can go into my own room and close the door and play my music on my own stereo system. Now that's when you feel like you're a grown-up. Yeah. <laughs> and you're able to close the door. Yeah, my yeah. folks got me, I believe it's probably 1964, <laughs> 65. They got a stereo, it was an RCA and it was the phonograph with the speakers that would fold in and create a box. Yeah. It looked like a suitcase. <laughs> and the, and, but wasn't that a feeling that oh, I, I have this music system now and I can select my own? Did he give you the 8-track, any tapes that went with it, or did you have to go out and buy your own? Uh, I think he bought a couple of them, but the ones that he bought, interestingly enough, are ones that he would also enjoy listening to. They were they were big band music. Yeah. So he and I used to sit in there and listen to this big band music. Yeah, that's how Gilbert had his first love of Montovani and Andre Castellanos. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> that is so funny. You know, thinking about what you said about, about the stereo and, as Mike said, about choosing your own form of entertainment, yeah. I remember uh, receiving, and again, within reasonably close proximity, uh, my first transistor radio, and then not long afterwards, I remember receiving my first camera. Back in those days, Kodak had these uh, little Instamatic cameras that basically changed the whole landscape of personal photography. And I remember having my own Instamatic camera that was very similar to the one that my parents had of theirs, and it was neat because I was able to take my own pictures. I then was given responsibility to take them to the store, have them develop, and then develop my own uh, uh, albums and uh, create my own uh, uh, little book of memories. What a great responsibility that was, and it was really a fun project to do. And then with the transistor radio, the nice thing was, as Mike noted, you could select your entertainment. And then, of course, if you had a little earphone, you could listen to it privately. So if you wanted to listen to the ball game, you could listen to the ball game without disturbing other people. Or if you wanted to listen to rock and roll music uh, in a way that would not disturb others, you could do the same thing. And I thought that was a tremendous amount of fun to be able to have your own first camera, your own first transistor radio that allowed you to have portable entertainment and then another uh, vehicle that allowed you to create your own book of memories that you could tell people where to stand or, gee, I want to take a picture of that particular site or that uh, event that's unfolding. I had one of those little Instamatic cameras. That was my first camera that my dad had given me. And then uh, 
took a lot of pictures with that. The roll of film was like a little cartridge. They just went in, and I remember closing the door, and it would go as it would spin the, yes, uh, the film. That's right. I've forgotten that. that. Yeah. Yes, yes. Wow. <laughs> Those were the Instamatics. The Instamatics. The Instamatics yeah, exactly. were, were yeah. I think, an indelible part of the landscape yeah. at that time. Did yeah. you ever have a Polaroid swinger? I did. I did. Wasn't oh, that my, amazing? Oh, my gosh. You could create instant photos. Little black and white. <laughs> Little that, black and white. And there was this goop. This, it was like <laughs> nail polish. Stuff. I remember the goop. Clear nail polish. And you'd have to coat the photos. Oh, my gosh. I still yeah. got... I, those are probably going to outlive the cockroaches in the nuclear holocaust. Cause <laughs> they I, probably will. I have some from the early 60s, and they're just like they were taken the day before. Wow. They didn't fade or anything. It's, this was probably some type of shellac. I'm sure it was. It might have been from uh, maybe a derivative of, uh, because the, the company Polaroid, uh, mm. they actually provided the film that was used initially in the U-2 spy plane flights, and then later the SR-71. Mm. So wow. I'm, I'm betting that the reason for that technology came out of the uh, military reconnaissance, and then they were able to commercialize it as well. You probably didn't know that. No. At the time. <laughs> no, that's interesting. Well, there were firsts in our lives that, for whatever reason, went awry. Oh, yes. I'm Gilbert, sure do you were. remember <laughs> Dad giving you a couple of bucks and telling you, we'll go down and get a haircut today? Your first haircut that was your first unsupervised haircut? I remember it quite well because I had to go back. Not once. <laughs> not once, but twice. <laughs> and it's humiliating for an 11-year-old or 12-year-old boy to, <laughs> whose dad gives him buck 50 or whatever, whatever haircuts went for in the mid-60s, and to come home and look. And he goes, I thought I told you to go get a haircut. Well, I did. I know you didn't. Go back. You got it styled. Yeah. You got it styled, but I you said, didn't get it cut. I said a haircut, not a trim. And to go back and then return once again, and that's a little bit better. Well, Dad, I think the guy wants to get paid each time. I'll go down and talk to him. That's not a haircut. I, I know what a haircut is. Do you want me to take out the wall? I think they were the wall clippers. Because oh, all yes. my life, up till about <laughs> up till about the age of ten or eleven, my dad would I had myself and two brothers, he would put a chair up on the dining room table, a mm -mm. little chair, mm -mm. and he would be the haircut guy and you talk about being a recruit at the Marine Corps recruit depot, that's what we look like. All the way up to and including probably the middle of, of junior high school. And yep. I, I was entrusted with a buck fifty or buck seventy five to go get my hair cut on a Saturday. And I vividly remember having to do a return trip. I don't know if it was the fact that I disappointed my dad and took his money and, and didn't deliver up on the haircut, or to go back to the barber, and the barber thought it was funny. I, I'm sure the barber had <laughs> seen that situation before with, with young men who sure. just didn't quite deliver, but to go back, and uh, my dad doesn't thinks I need to get more taken off, and... Uh, there, I learned the difference between a trim and a haircut at that point. Yeah. Mike, I think your dad and my dad would have been great friends. Oh, because, I'm sure. Because I also had that Marine recruit yes. haircut well into junior high school. Well into junior high school. And my dad uh, would take me over to Gilbert the Barber. The guy's name was Gilbert, just like mine. And uh, he knew exactly what my dad wanted it. Yeah. My dad would also get a haircut as well. And... Uh, I remember those those buzz cuts. <laughs> wow, that's fun. What a, those are both fun memories. Uh, certainly bonding experiences, that's bonding for sure. Bonding experience. And then there were the co-ed 
first times that went awry. In my case, it was a young young lady by the name of of Becky Booth. Hmm. Not to be confused with Betty Boop. Betty Boop, I was just thinking. Becky that. Booth. That's what I was thinking as well. <laughs> Here I am in, in, I believe it was the, either the 7th or 8th grade in the L.A. Unified School District, and they had uh, called co-ed dance. And uh, oh, I got all ready for that co-ed dance, and it was, an, uh, I believe it was one afternoon class. And everybody on the dance floor, and they would match us up with people, and I hoped so dearly that I would be matched up with Becky Booth, and I was, except the fact is not only did I have two left feet, but I had these large gunboat-type wingtip shoes on both left feet. Oh, my gosh. That probably looked more like pontoon boats, (laughs) because I wanted to dress up, so I wore my church shoes which I might add had slick leather soles, which didn't work well on the linoleum of the multi-purpose room. And out I go to the dance floor with uh, Becky Booth, and the last thing I remember I was looking up at the basketball lights at the ceiling as everyone laughed. That was an interesting first. That's a first I'll never forget. But did she provide aid and comfort to you? Uh, No, she provided... The pep rally that got everybody else laughing, and uh, I don't think she'd ever want to look at me again. But the fact is, she uh, she made a brave attempt to dance with me, and after I crushed her ankles, her tibia, with my gunboats, uh, I then took the slide and fell. And that's one of those memories you just don't forget. I don't know if you forget the fact that this was the first girl I had a crush on, who also was the first girl that I ever really held hands with yeah. in the, on the dance floor but also took the spill, so there was a lot of dynamics combined. That was a day of firsts for me that I would much rather try to forget, but I've never been able to. Can you spell disaster? <laughs> humiliation. That was are, tough, man. Are there two L's in humiliation? That was... That, oh, we'll look that up. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough one. You know, I want to talk about uh, one first for me that uh, I think for, for all of us here... I would think opened up a, a lifetime uh, hobby that uh, we continue to enjoy to this day. But I remember reading my first novel, or shall we say big book, when I was in elementary school. And that book happened to be the classic book, Swiss Family Robinson by uh, Johann Weiss. And uh, I still have my own edition of that book uh, from childhood. I keep it in my bookshelf. It's about 350 pages or so, fully illustrated by Grosset and Dunlop. And what I remember about that was at the time when we had to read for school, that most kids were just reading books that were maybe, let's say, 50 pages in length, maybe 70 pages. But I, for my own reasons, decided to undertake uh, reading this big book. And... um, I spent several months, you know, because at that time I had uh, severe problems with my eyes, so I was very restricted as to what I could use my eyes for. I could only use it for schoolwork, and after doing schoolwork, I only could have a few minutes at a time to do for pleasure reading. That was the thinking at that time. So it took me several months to get through this book, in fact, much of the school year, but I did get through it. And for me, it opened up a lifetime love of reading because I spent several months getting to know the Robinson family and sharing all of their wonderful adventures. And um, in the next year, uh, when the restrictions were lifted on my use of my eyes, I had finally figured out how to handle it, uh, and I was able to resume normal reading. 
from then on and to this very day, you know, I make regular trips to the library or the bookstore or both, and I just love reading big books and big novels. And I really attribute it also, you know, to, you know, my parents introducing me to that love of reading and books. And that became a rite of passage as well, uh, Mike and Gilbert, that, uh, you know, that a lot of times on a Saturday morning that you could go to visit uh, the bookstores in Hollywood. And um, it was something that you could do, you know, with your parents and, you know, you'd, you'd visit the various sections or the library. And I think that was something that had, uh, for me, a positive lifetime effect. I'm really grateful. And I, that's probably the reason why I still have a fondness for that first novel, that first big book, Swiss Family Robinson. And that's why I've kept it all these years. That just led to a whole lifetime of uh, reading. Yeah. What an important first that was. Because... Like we talked about in a previous program that we discussed about Lawrence Welk, this is something you could share and enjoy with your parents. You could talk about it at the dinner table. You could say, you know, and then my mom had said to me, gee, if you enjoyed this book, maybe you'll enjoy this one. And so I had an opportunity to read a lot of the books that my mother had read when she was growing up. Black Beauty, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, Jane Eyre. I mean, name them. And it, and it came. Catcher yeah. in the Rye. Yeah, Catcher in the Rye Rye. <laughs> I jest. <laughs> of course. Oh, we can go to the edgy side of first and talk yes. about, in my case, uh, first cigarette. Oh, yeah, yeah, first cigarette. Sure. Did it taste I, good I, like a cigarette should? No, I think after I cleaned up the vomit from my shoes. <laughs> but it was, I remember the first cigarette. I can remember back, and I was probably, I'm sure I was about 11 years old, and my grandmother Bless her heart, smoked Pall Malls. Mm-hmm. The Pall Mall experience. The red package ones. The reds, Oh, yes. my God. And she'd smoke them down to the nub, believe me, <laughs> fellas. She'd smoke them down to the fingernails. But uh, I lifted one from her pack. She came to visit, and I took one, and I thought, well, if one's good, two would be better. <laughs> <laughs> and deputized my middle brother, Patrick, to go to an alley about a block and a half away. I don't know if you remember that the cigarette companies would all, if you got enough packs or enough coupons, they would send you a lighter. And I remember Salem. Yes. A Salem butane lighter. Yes. Or maybe it was lighter fluid, but off we went to this, off we went to this desolate alley to which, and it was a Saturday afternoon, a beautiful day in Los Angeles, a beautiful day in Highland Park in the suburbs and into this alley we went and stood behind a garage, and I fired one of these up, and I tried to mimic the way in the 60s, and for that matter, the 50s, and probably uh, definitely the 40s, it seemed like everybody you knew smoked everybody cigarettes. Everybody smoked. Sure, they did. Everybody, yeah. everybody smoked. smoked. <laughs> including, including, by the way, your famous sports stars. I mean, Movie. I, I mean I've, I, Absolutely. I've, seen, I've Movie seen pictures stars, of a lot of my uh, favorite stars. Did. John Wayne, sure, Chesterfields, athletes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mickey Mantle, uh, just people sure. would smoke. That's what they did. It was the thing you do. So I thought, well, you know, if everybody's doing it, I can do this too. Sure. And we fired up this pell mell, and I took a good long hit. And uh, first of all, I thought I was going to pass out because you know, when in the in the science of cigarette smoking, you have it's much like a Briggs and Stratton lawnmower engine. You have to have air and fuel mixture just right. Or bad things happen, and usually it involves your lunch coming back up, which it did. But I, I remember getting sick, and I remember, well, this must not be how you do it. So we put the first one out and struck up the second one, and then along came a good friend of ours by the name of David Briegel. 
And he was 11 years old, but he had about four years' experience smoking cigarettes. Uh, David Briegel was 11 years old, and he was, he was what you would call a chain smoker. Wow. And he showed us how to take, Yikes. A, take a drag and, and enjoy the smoke and let the smoke waft out of your, out of your lungs. And I, I thought, well, this is it, but I still don't find the attraction or the novelty. And probably for about the next 40 years, I, I was not interested in smoking cigarettes. And I will segue into another first. Uh, I had an uncle who chewed tobacco. Yikes. And not only chewed tobacco, but savored it to the point where he, he would carry a Dixie cup around with them and spit in it. And That's so, intense, man. There I am cutting a sliver of this stuff. And it, I remember it was like cutting into a maybe a Snickers bar, but with with leaves coming out of it. Putting it in the side of my mouth and taking a good old good old death grip jaw clenching taste of it and chew and that was an experience that i won't forget as long as i live the juice and the sickening feeling and the and the burning in my throat and the and the way that the grit and the tobacco but how you remember that as a first is because a lot of the first that were bad experiences you remember quite more vividly than the first that weren't such bad experiences but tobacco products I remember taking the first sip of beer. Mm-hmm. My dad liked Ham's beer. Mm-hmm. A refreshing is the land of sky blue waters, but there's a certain way that you take a sip of beer and, without it coming up through your nose and, and damaging your upper plumbing through your nose. And uh, I remember those first. And when you're a kid, it's such an adventure. You're, I, I, I drank some of my dad's beer. He went to the bathroom or he went... Went outside to pick up the newspaper, and I, I took a good old swig of beer. <laughs> and that's along the lines of, of smoking the first cigarette, yeah. taking the first shot. My Uncle Mel had a – he smoked pipes. I yeah. remember taking one of his pipes and going out and smoking it. <laughs> and they weren't that great of memories, but they were still memories. And right. it, you know, we talk about the songbook of your life and the photograph album of your life. But the sensual – the sensual feelings of your life, the taste, the smells, the sights, the sounds, uh, the tactile feelings, the first time you really got yourself burned, mm-hmm. picking mm-hmm. up some popcorn off the stove or whatnot. Mm-hmm. You never forget those. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's also, you know, a number of not so good memories associated with firsts, but certainly you folks out there that have memories of doing first things, whether they be good things or happy things or bad things or whatever they were, if you would like to share that with us, we sure would like to hear from you. Why don't you drop us an email? Our email address is galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com, galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com. Our website is galaxymoonbeamnightsight, and of course we remind you our dear friend George Helolakos here posts a wonderful blog post on his page on our website each month. Make sure that you check it out. Our Facebook page, uh, the Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside page on Facebook. Make sure that you come check us out, look at our page, like us, be our friend, and you'll be updated with all the stuff that we post on there. And don't forget, all of our library of over 200 programs is available for your listening pleasure on iTunes and on Mixcloud.com. That's all the time we have on our program today. We thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm George. And thanks for joining us on Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.
This is the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.